You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. So today we're looking at Psalm 4. Uh, We're continuing our series on rest. We've talked a lot about rest, you know, how to rest, where to find rest, restful practices, rest in the midst of busy lives, Sabbath rest. But one thing we haven't touched on is what happens when our rest is destroyed by bad circumstances, trouble, trial. In the words of Mike Tyson, everyone's got a plan till they get punched in the mouth and then everything goes out the window, right? Uh, You know, is it possible to find rest when everything, when our world is kind of crumbling around us? Uh, Landon's father, who is a pastor, was a pastor of the church that Ruth and I attended before we came here, was known to say, people are like a tube of toothpaste. When you step on them, what's inside comes out. There's nothing like trouble to bring out what's really in a person's heart. Your response to trouble will reveal where your heart really is. Uh, it will shine a spotlight, and it will shine a spotlight on uh, your relationship with the Lord. Because in a crisis, what's, what's in here comes out. Trouble can cause us to lose our way. Uh, years ago, and more years than I care to admit, back when I was a teenager, my brother and I went to a, uh, were going to a youth conference in Toronto off of Victoria Park Road. I still remember the, the feeling, just it was, it was so, so vivid. Um, so we came out, it was dark, we came out, and I, I turned on to Victoria Park, and I'm driving along, and I'm thinking to myself, I have... I have no idea where I am. And, and nothing was looking familiar. And I was, and, and as we were driving along, I'm just saying, my, you know, do you know where we are? Like, it just, it feels all wrong. And we just kept going along. And then all of a sudden, I saw the sign for a road that I recognized. And I realized that I was heading completely in the wrong direction. But it was like everything just kind of, in a, in a moment, just kind of flipped around, and I was like, now I know the direction that I ought to go. And the, the, the trouble and difficulty can cause us to head in the wrong direction. And Psalm 4, and in Psalm 4, David gives us some markers that will help us find the right direction and the right path forward uh, when we find ourselves with trouble knocking at the door. Now, I, I have to confess that, that, you know, I was really in unfamiliar territory when I got to Psalm 4. Um, it's not exactly one of my go-to psalms. You know, it's not one of the ones I look to when, I'm, when I need comfort or, or I, I need encouragement. And, and the more I was looking at it, and I'm, you know, and also under my breath saying, what's with it? Why does Aaron always give me these things to preach on? I have no idea what I'm going to say, and I just kept thinking, what, what can I say? So, in desperation, 
I turned to the interweb <laughs> and I looked up Psalm 4 on YouTube. And after a couple of false starts, I found a sermon entitled, A Powerful Prayer to, of Psalm 4 to Win the Lottery and Attract Wealth. And I'm like, well, that sounds really promising. Um, don't bother looking it up. I tried it. It doesn't work. I did not win the lottery. Um, you know, there's a lot of nonsense on, there really is a lot of nonsense on the, on the internet. Um, but there's also some really good stuff. And, and after a little bit of searching, I, I came across a couple of sermons, one by a, uh, a, a, a gentleman by the name of uh, Gene Getz, and another one by a pastor I'd never heard of named Buddy Gray, and I listened to a sermon. It was excellent, some church uh, in southern U.S., and they really helped me get a better understanding of what Psalm 4 is all about. So let's just kind of jump in, read Psalm 4, see what, uh, see what uh, David has to say, um, or what the Lord has to say through David's writings, and then we'll, uh, we'll try and unpack it. So Psalm 4, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long... Shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him, call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say who will show us some good. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Let's just pray. Lord, would you open up our hearts to your word? Would you speak to us? We want to hear from you by your spirit. And Lord, as we hear from you, would we respond and do what you ask us to do that we might walk with you in a deeper and more personal relationship and that we might find the rest that you promise uh, in your word. And we, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so it's unclear what, what situation was troubling David, but a number of scholars have suggested that, that, that Psalm Four comes on the heels of Psalm 3. And Psalm 3 says this. It says, uh, it starts off with the heading, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Uh, that was when Absalom uh, started an insurrection against David. And he rebelled against David, his own son. He kind of took over the, uh, uh, the people's hearts. And, and he, you know, came into Jerusalem. And basically David had to flee for his life out of, out of the royal palace and out of Jerusalem where he lived. When all of his followers and, and, and off, he went out of the city. And it really seems to fit psalm chapter four when we when we when we look at that i mean it doesn't really matter 
what circumstance that David found himself in, but it fits. He was going through some sort of personal difficulty, some uh, distress, sorrow, grief, anguish. We can, we can see that in his words. Verse 1, he says, You have given me relief when I was in distress. Verse 2, O oh men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? Verse 8, For you alone make me to dwell in safety. I mean, you use those kinds of words, distress, shame, safety. You use those kinds of things when trouble is is afoot. And from David's language, we can tell that he was in the middle of, of something that was going on. And, you know, for us, hardship, difficulty. I keep touching this. Sorry, my apologies. Um, hardship. Difficulty, trouble, adversity, injustice, affliction, it's universal. It comes to all of us. Sooner or later, you're going to find yourself in it, or maybe more appropriately, it's going to find you. It's going to come to all of us. You know, there's family trouble and, and marital trouble and kid trouble, work trouble, health trouble, interpersonal conflict, financial pressure, unforeseen circumstances, unexpected danger. It finds you any, it can find you anywhere and everywhere. You know, Jesus himself said, in this world you will have tribulation. And David is in the middle of it, right, you know, alligators up to his armpits. (laughs) Or up to his armpits and alligators, however you say it. But here's the thing about David. And the thing that I just, I just, you know, it's, it's been a lifetime. It's just really captured my imagination. I'm sure I've mentioned it before. One of the things that the scripture tells us about David, and I just love it, is that it says that David was a man after God's own heart. In 1 Samuel uh, chapter 13, the prophet Isaiah has to go face to face with the with King Saul, who was the king before David. And he says to him, but now your kingdom, because of his disobedience, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him as ruler over the people. In the New Testament, we go to Acts chapter 12, and it says this, after removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, he will do everything that I ask him to. This thing just keeps popping, doesn't it? Do I need to move it? No? It's okay? Okay. I'm getting a thumbs up. Um, people are like a tube of toothpaste. Step on them, and what's inside comes out. David was a man whose heart was fixed on the Lord. When the pressure was on, out of his heart came an assurance and a reliance on God. You know what should challenge us? It should challenge us at any time in our life, but particularly when we're in crisis. You know, this, this last verse there where he says, In peace I both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Talk about finding rest in the Lord. I mean, you don't say those kinds of things unless you have a trust and a rest in the Lord. You know, to have a heart like David, you know, that would be something. That would be a worthy goal. 
You know, I don't, I don't know what you long for in your life, what your goals are. You know, we're always told in life we've got to set goals. But I hope that, that this kind of character, that this, this kind of um, attitude of the heart that seeks for God, that longs for Him to know Him, to please Him, I hope that that's something that, that, that is really, really high on the list of your priority. A heart that's willing to follow God in whatever circumstance comes along. You know, and David wasn't perfect. Far from it. You know, one of the things I really like about the Bible is that they, we, they just, the Bible just doesn't whitewash or gloss over the sins of the men like David. You know, we, uh, if, this, if this psalm was in fact written during the time of Absalom's rebellion... We really can trace, you know, David wasn't without culpability in that, in that scenario. You know, David wasn't without fault because Absalom, you know, if we can trace back the story of Absalom and we find out that there's, there's this, this terrible thing that happened in the, in the royal palace where, where Absalom's sister, was Tamar, was raped by one of the other, you know, the king had a lot of wives, so one of the other half-brothers, relation of some sort, raped Tamar. And it says that David got angry, but he didn't do any. We don't hear that David did anything about it. And, and, and Absalom, you know, he, he, he meted out justice on his own thing. He, he actually killed the person who, who was responsible for the rape. And then, and then David said, well, you know, it says his heart longed for Absalom... But he never, he never sort of was reconciled to, to Absalom. And then eventually Absalom rebels against David and, and, and comes into it. You know, David was not perfect. And you can read about that in, in, in 2 Samuel chapters 13 to 18. Terrible story. But, you know, David wasn't perfect, but his heart was oriented towards the Lord. That was his default position. And in Psalm 4, he, he, he provides for us kind of a list of attitudes that we can adopt when hardship and difficulty come, when adversity come our way, some that are bad, some that are good. And for every bad and harmful attitude, there's a corresponding and contrasting good attitude. Because the, the bad attitudes that we take, they, they drive us away from God. But the good attitudes, they, they drive us towards the Lord. So let's have a look here. Bad attitude number one. We find that in verse two. O men, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Vain words. Well, what does he mean by vain words? Well, he means worthless. Useless words. Deluded, deceptive, false, fake you know, there's no shortage of information uh, about how to deal with troubling situations. I just, I, you know, one of the things I like to do is I like to do a search on the internet and then see what comes up. 1,610,000,000 results on how to deal with trouble. <laughs> Everyone's got an opinion. Everyone has a take on how to deal with ad adversity. And the problem is that 
most of it doesn't line up with the truth of God's word. One commentator on verse 4 said this, Deception is the stock and trade of the enemies of God's people, most of all the great enemy Satan, who is a liar and the father of lies, and he and those he uses love delusions. You know, we need to understand that, that vain words and useless words and worthless words and deceptive words and false words, that is the domain of Satan. You know, Jesus warned us. He was a murderer from the beginning. This is what Jesus says about Satan. Not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And, it, and, it, and the question is very simple for us as believers. Where do you go for wisdom and instruction when your world is crumbling around you? And David shows us the right way in contrast to, to, to people who look anywhere and everywhere for a solution to the problems that they're going through. And he starts it with, he starts Psalm 4 with it. He says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So wrong attitude is listening to vain words. The right attitude, number one, is humbly looking to the Lord. David understood that during a time of crisis, the answers are found in the Lord. Relief can only come from the Lord. God is the one who both hears and answers prayer truthfully. You know, it's interesting that David uses this word, and I was really kind of captivated by it this week as I, as I was thinking about it. He uses the phrase, O God of my righteousness. And I think it's very significant that he uses that terminology because David's righteousness rested solely with God. David was under no illusions about his own character He saw himself in the proper context before a holy and a righteous God. There's no vain thinking. There's no self-delusion. There's no high-mindedness or the elevation of his his self in the phrase, O God of my righteousness. And this is where we, we can so often get into trouble when we fail to recognize that only God is righteous. And we can be deluded into believing that vain, you know, to believing vain words and and lies. You know, arrogance and pride are ruling our day. People have so elevated their own opinions about what is right and wrong that if if you dare hold a differing view, you're not just wrong. You're to be discredited. You're to be labeled as dangerous. You're to be hated. And it's just the sheer arrogance and elevation of of man's opinion of what they think is right and wrong. You know, as soon as we start to think that we've got it all figured out, when we begin to esteem and elevate our own viewpoints, 
our own intellect above what God tells us in his word, we're definitely heading in the wrong direction. And we might not even realize it. It's not just happening out in the world, it's happening in the church. Over the years, I've I've been in countless small group Bible studies, and I can tell you that generally there is no shortage of vain words in that setting. You know, if I go to a study and I'm more interested in what I have to say, if I'm more interested in elevating my own ideas, if I'm more interested in getting you to think that I'm clever or smart or wise, if I think those things above the humble approach to wanting to understand God's word, most likely what will come out of my mouth is vain words. You know, Timothy was, or Paul was clear in his, in, his, in his instructions to Timothy, he said, do your best to present yourself as one as approved, uh, as, sorry, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. You know, I, I some time ago, Ruth and I were in a Bible study, and, and uh, I don't know how we got on the topic. We were talking about kids and, you know, how you, how you raise your kids, and there was a single mother there, and she said something to the effect of, um, I, I've told my son, you, sh- you should never start an argument. You should never... You know, never get into a fight. But if you get into one, make sure you finish it properly. Meaning, like, you know, beat the you know, tar out of the other person. Like, if they take the first swing, make sure you finish them off. And I'm like, where is that in the Bible, right? And I remember going back and talking to my son about it and saying, yeah, you know, this is, this is what this lady was sharing. And, and he relayed a story to me, and I do remember it. Um, when he was in public school, he was being bullied by a kid in his class. And, you know, at the time I was really trying to understand, you know, how, how do I help my son? How do I give him godly advice? And, you know, and understanding what God says in his word. And I, so I said to him one day, you know, Kurt, why don't you just go into your toy box and pick out the, the very best, your favorite dinky toy, if you will, you know, a little car. And why don't, you just, why don't you just give it to him? And so he did. And then I said, you know, what happened? He said, oh, he kind of he just went, oh, thank you. He was so sort of more surprised at what happened. Later on, they became friends. But here's the point. My son, 20 years later, is relaying the story to me as something that was really really profound in his life. That that was a really profound response. And it wasn't because I had any wisdom in it. It was, it was because I was trying to understand and discern God's word and how God, you know, what, how would God command us to act in the face of, of somebody who is, who is bullying us. You know, when we calmly come before the Lord with our requests, with a genuine desire to understand what he would say, when we elevate his word, 
above our own word. When we, when we recognize that we're not going to be able to find the way by ourselves, when we recognize we're not going to find peace in any other way other than in God's presence and in his word, when we humbly acknowledge that he's the one who holds the answers that only God can lead us through what we're facing. We're, we're most likely to be able to say some of the things that David says here in Psalm 4. He says, You have given me relief when I was in distress. Not I was able to figure it out on my own and I didn't really need God for this. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. See, the, the joy that the Lord provides, it's, it's greater than anything that the, the world can offer us. In peace I will lie down and sleep for you alone. O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. You know, the ultimate indication that you really get this idea that, that we have to humbly seek the Lord and what he has to say is that we can say something like what David said here. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. You know, if you can sleep peacefully, that's an indication that you are getting what the Lord is telling you. Bad attitude number, or bad attitude number two, anger. Verse four, be angry and do not sin. Anger can be defined as a human emotion, a human emotional response to situations that are either out of our control or out of our ability to understand, or both. You know, and I'm amazed at how quickly anger can well up. You know, in an instant, Ruth will attest to this, in an instant, I can get really angry just by being cut off in the 401. I'm ashamed to say. Anger is one of those emotions that can flare up instantly. We even have actually a vocabulary around, you know, anger flaring up. You know, mercurial, explosive, volatile, moody, erratic, a knee-jerk reaction, hair trigger, you know, the list goes on and on. We have all these ways to describe anger and how it comes out. How quickly we can become angry when things don't go our way. And Ruth has been commenting lately, she's saying, you know, it just seems to me like people are getting more and more angry today than they've ever been or that we've ever seen in our lifetime. There's just a lot of angry people. You know, look how many planes have, have had to turn around in the last six months. It seems like every other day it's like, oh, this plane had to land, angry, you know, took them off in cuffs. You know, people, people are getting angry you know, every day we're hearing about news. It's funny, I was talking to my chiropractor on, on Friday, and he's relaying this story to me. He's a, he had to take his, his bike into the bike store, and he's saying, this guy was in front of me, and, he's, and he's, he's, he's ranting and raving because he likes to go on group rides where you get 20 or 30 bikes together, and, you know, one guy was slow. And why is he riding with the people? He has no business. He can't, if you can't keep up with everybody else, you know, 
just go ride by yourself. Why are you riding with us? Why are you ruining it for everybody? And, and the, my chiropractor is just standing there listening to this guy. But we see this every day. That's the world around us. Fortunately, fortunately, it doesn't really affect us here in the church, right? Christian brother, Christian sister, have you ever questioned, blamed, or even lashed out at God when confronted with difficult and troubling circumstances? I would suggest that it happens a lot more than we care to admit. People get disillusioned, dissatisfied, angry, and resentful with God. It's not fair. I've been faithful. I've done what you asked. I serve in the church. I do the right thing. I am a good person. And this is how you treat me? This is how you treat your children? Boy, I wouldn't want to see how you treat your enemies. You know? Lashing out at God usually means that we don't have all of the facts. Okay? We're only seeing a small part of the picture. God says, my ways are not your ways. He's God for a reason. He sees things that we don't see. And lack of understanding is kind of like the, the flip side of the coin of being angry with God. We don't understand what's going on, so we get angry with God. But anger is actually a counterproductive to the process of growing in our faith. It prevents us from engaging with the Lord in a meaningful way. Our expressed frustration and anger at God, it, 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 it closes us off. It closes our hearts off to Him. If that's the way it's going to be, I don't want to talk to you. And we close the door. How much do you want to talk to somebody when you're angry with them? You don't. You want to give them the cold shoulder, the silent treatment. But here's the problem. Turning the cold shoulder towards God never, never results in rest. This is why David encourages us with a contrasting approach. He says, slow down and trust. Here's what David recommends in verse 4. Ponder in your own hearts and on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. It's funny because at a glance... It kind of looks like that's contrary to the advice that we get in Ephesians, which says, don't let the, you know, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sin go, or don't let the sun go down on your anger. Well, what is it? Uh, ponder on my bed, you know, as, I'm, as I go to bed kind of angry, or, or, or don't go to bed angry. Like, what am I doing here? But I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Because... If you're angry with someone, you need to make it right quickly. But if you're contemplating something sinful, or you have in, in, your, eye, in your mind to, to, to do something that's wrong, sleep on it. Ponder it. Wait till the morning. And then... Deal with it. It's kind, of the, it's kind of the Christian version of don't send that email, that angry email until you cool down. Uh, you know, otherwise you're going to find yourself in trouble. 
which is really interesting because there's a lot of good advice in God's word, isn't there? <laughs> it's funny where that, you know, don't send the email until you've had a chance to cool down came from. came from God's word, who says the Bible is not applicable to today. What happens when we ponder in our hearts and put our trust in the Lord? We acknowledge God's sovereignty. We, we move away from that knee-jerk reaction. Oh, Lord, what are you doing? Why are you, why, you know, I've done everything you asked me to do. But we acknowledge God's sovereignty and we humbly acknowledge our own inability and insufficiency to cope with what we're going through and we invite him into the trouble. With all of its grief, discomfort, and perplexity. You know, we, we, we open up the conversation with God. We don't, we don't cut it off. Brings us to bad attitude number three. Defeatism and hopelessness, better known as the pity party. Verse six. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Nothing good ever happens to me. Feels like God's always punishing me. My plans never work out. Now, I do want to be clear here. I'm not, I'm not talking about depression or other uh, more serious, debilitating mental health issues. I'm, I'm talking about the, the pity party, the feeling sorry for yourself and the whining about how unlucky and unfair God is to you, the circumstances that you're going through, how crummy your life is. You know, and for Christians, it's usually directed towards the Lord. And I just couldn't help but remember, you, you, no one here is going to remember it, but there was a show called Hee Haw. Does anybody know? Some, some people are laughing, you know. And it was like, there was like these, these three guys, there were four guys sitting around and they had like a little, you know, a jug of hooch and they were singing this song, you know. It was like, you know, if it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. You know, it's like gloom, despair, and agony on me. You know, like that's the, that's the pity party thing, you know. And everything I said about the damage that anger can do, the pity party can do as well. Defeatism, hopelessness, it can really block our communication with the Lord. So what's David's answer? David's answer is rest. So this week I asked Ruth a question, and it went like this. And you're going to want to write this down because her answer was extremely profound and, and, and quite good. So I said to her, what's the difference between trust and rest? And here's her answer, and I quote, why do you always ask me theological questions first thing in the morning? <laughs> Which is right, because I do. That's when I ask her questions, because that's when I'm thinking about it, right? So I had to come up with my own definition, and Ruth, <laughs> and Ruth wholeheartedly agreed with me on the definition of, of uh, what's the difference between trust and rest. And, the, and here it is, okay, and maybe not what you're thinking, but... I think that trust has to precede rest. Okay, and here's what I mean. I'll give you an illustration. If I set up a hammock 
you know, I tie it between two trees. Before I can get in it and rest, I have to trust that it's going to hold me up. Okay? And if we're going to rest in the Lord, we have to trust that he's going to hold us up. And David knew that he could trust God with whatever was troubling him. And David also knew that God would hold him up, but not just hold him up, he would hold him in the most intimate and the most profound way. Verse 3, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. You know, I wish I could... You know, I was thinking about this this morning, and I'm just like, I, I just have no way of putting framing this with words. God has a special and dear place near to his heart for his children. It's like we're his prized possessions. He has set us aside for himself. When a person is saved by faith in Jesus, when they, when they enter into a personal relationship with the Lord, they become a very special, beloved child of God. Trouble and difficulty, distress, affliction, they can't touch that. They don't affect that. They can't change that. And David knew that. And he trusted and he rested in it. He's like, I'm going to go to bed now. I'm going to sleep well. He ends off the psalm with, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone make me to dwell in safety. The trust comes first, then the rest. You know, there's a right way to approach trouble. There's a wrong way to approach trouble. One way is going to drive us away from the Lord. The Lord never moves. The Lord never changes. We're told in the New Testament, there's no shifting shadow. He doesn't kind of, there's no variation in him. He's always the same. He's always there. But it's us that, that, that by our, our attitudes can, can, can move away in the wrong direction. Or we can move in the right direction. We can adopt those, those right attitudes and, and, and move towards the Lord and move towards rest. And I hope this morning that, you know, whatever you're going through, that as you look at this psalm, you realize that there is for us a, a real place of rest. But it has to be preceded by trust. So, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, this psalm. Lord, I, I confess that when I, when I came to it, I had no idea how rich and how full it was but we know that when we humbly approach your word, that you will teach us, you will show us, you will, you will give us what we need. And Lord, we're so grateful. We're so grateful that you've set apart the godly for yourself. That means, Lord, that you cherish us, that you love us, that you care for us, that you hold us close. 
And what a wonderful picture of the relationship that you have given us through our Lord Jesus. We thank you for that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.